That's a brilliant song written by my good friend Greg Tamblin. And uh, I commented this morning as we were rehearsing that this will be the first time I have said poop from the podium. So it felt pretty good. So the idea for this sermon, religious or spiritual or science, came um, from a couple of things. One, it's well known in church uh, management circles today that the fastest growing segment of the population are people who call themselves spiritual, not religious. Not just who call themselves spiritual, they say spiritual, not religious. So there's a paradigm shift that's going on just as Chris talked about. And also, every time I do a wedding, I have a little questionnaire that I send out to the people so I can kind of get to know them, to know what kinds of things they would want in the wedding, what kinds of things they wouldn't want, if they're comfortable with the word God, if they have a different word, if they want to leave it out, all whatever. I have all of these questions. And so um, this couple that I married several months ago said, when I put, what do you believe in? They wrote, science. I was like, okay. Awesome, awesome. Science means knowledge, right? And um, I, I, I thought it was pretty cool. And as I talked to them, and even as I read their questionnaire, and as we met together and talked, it was apparent to me that they were very spiritual people who were really sick of the religious stuff that had been stuffed down their throats by their parents, by their culture, by their community, by their church, by their school, by their childhoods. And so what I love is that there's no either or here. And that's what I hope this upcoming um, generation of people who say, no, I don't identify with a religion, but that doesn't mean I don't claim that I am part of something bigger, that I am part of a whole, that there is something in me besides just this body, something eternal, something infinite, something connected, something loving, something able to partake of love. And that anything that we learn in science does not in any way conflict with that. Um, Einstein spent a lot of time writing about how, you know, you can't use empiricism, which is that's what science uses. We, we have a hypothesis, we put it to the test. If it doesn't work repeatably, then we get rid of that hypothesis, but we can't do the opposite. We can't say, my hypothesis is this is not true. <laughs> it just doesn't work that way. You can't use empiricism to disprove something. You can use it only to prove things. And I have a couple of quotes from Einstein today because I just, um, I love him. This is his explanation of religion. Everything the human race has done and thought is concerned with the satisfaction of deeply felt needs and the assuagement of pain. Everything we've created, everything, even the people you hate the most, what they wanted was to fulfill a deeply met need and to assuage pain. They may have gone about it all the wrong ways, and yet that is the truth of human endeavor. He says one has to keep this constantly in mind if one wants to understand spiritual movements and their development. Feeling and longing are the motive force behind all human endeavor and human creation in however exalted a guise the latter may present themselves to us. So 
In the beginning, religion was about fear. We had no way of knowing. Our human knowledge had not reached the point for us to be able to determine causality. We had no um, empirical way of, of judging things. We had no, um, we were just running from animals, hoping not to starve through the winter, <laughs> and not wanting to get beat on the head by someone else. So we're fearful that we will be hungry, fearful of beasts, fearful of sickness, and fearful of death. And what do people do when they get fearful? One of the first things that, God bless us, that we do is look around for somebody to blame. <laughs> somebody to blame. Well, I know I'm not doing it. <laughs> so it must be one of you out there. And so these mythical figures who have the power of life and death suddenly become um, legend become the mythology, and then they will do anything to not make those mythical figures mad and try to figure out what things are making them mad by like, for instance, what happened right before that terrible thunderstorm that wiped us out? We better not do that again. Or the opposite, what can we do to appease them? What is it that they want? Maybe since that thunderstorm wiped out a um, hundred people, maybe if we just give them one person a year, that might be enough for them to not do a hundred person thunderstorm. This is human beings feeling and longing and being in fear. That is what all of this was created from. And as we, those were the primitive religions always. As we grew, there was more of a moral impulse. There was more of the societal thing of how can we all get along? We are now living in, not just in tiny family groups, but in larger groups. And how can we all get along? Well, could be that we need a few rules here. And so this impulse is to have a parent figure, a guide, someone who is always right, to love and support and provide and to judge and punish for those people that aren't doing it right. Remember, always somebody to blame. And maybe to explain what this death thing is and why every single person dies. That's a mystery. Why does this happen? Both of these had some sort of anthropomorphic conception, like there is a being, basically a person, the big man in the sky with the beard that Michelangelo, bless his heart, was just doing an artistic rendering and that we took seriously that there's a big bearded man in the sky. Um, but that's what we longed for. And so we went, yeah, okay, big bearded man in the sky. And we have been confused about that big bearded man in the sky at least since the big bearded man in the red suit started bringing us good stuff if we're good and bad stuff if we're bad. <laughs> in America today, we often confuse God with Santa Claus. Yeah. If I'm good, I'm going to get good stuff. If I'm bad, I'm going to get bad stuff. And then, wait a minute, I was good. Why did this bad thing happen? What did I do wrong is one way of reacting to that. Or whose fault? Is, who did it? Who did it? Finding blame. That's the other way of dealing with it. And if we can blame a deity, all the better. Then maybe we can figure out ways to appease that deity. So all of this is that anthropomorphic God. We are creating God in our image, right? Well, if I didn't like what you were doing, I might strike you down. <laughs> so it must be if I got struck down that guy in the sky doesn't like what I'm doing and vice versa. 
But I'm going to quote um, Einstein again. But there is a third stage of a religious experience, though it is rarely found in pure form. I shall call it cosmic religious feeling. It is very difficult to elucidate this feeling to anyone who is entirely without it, especially as there is no anthropomorphic anthropomorphic conception of God corresponding to it. You can't hold on to the guy in the sky. But here's what this cosmic religious feeling is. The individual, according to Einstein, feels the futility of human desires and aims and the sublimity and marvelous order which reveal themselves both in nature and in the world of thought in our own minds. The individual existence impresses him as a sort of prison, and he wants to experience the universe as a single, significant whole. In other words, we're tired of feeling separate. We want to know that we're a part of something greater. The religious geniuses of all ages have hence uh, have been distinguished by this kind of feeling, which knows no dogma and no God conceived in man's image. Hence, it is precisely among the heretics of every age that we find those who are filled with this highest type of religious feeling. So how can we communicate that from one to another if it can give um, rise to no definite, definite notion or, relig or um, definition of God and no theology? How can we share that with one another without codifying and making it a rule and saying, because somebody said, you know, the use of the Bible, it's very interesting. How do we prove the Bible is true? Because the Bible says it is. And then you're in a circle you can never get out of. He goes on to say, in my view, it is the most important function of art and science to awaken this feeling and to keep it alive in those who are receptive to it. I maintain that the cosmic religious feeling is the strongest and noblest motive for scientific research. Only those who could realize the immense effort and above all devotion without which pioneer work in theoretical science cannot be achieved are able to grasp the emotion, the longing, out of which alone such work can issue. This is from a 1930 article in the New York Times Magazine. When things were changing rapidly, once again, you know, just a few years ago, it was a known fact that man could not fly, and now we got people up in planes shooting at each other. So this is an F, and so what happens is people get scared of it must be, you know, somebody's fault. It's the scientists. If they didn't discover these things, we wouldn't have these things happening. And, um, and especially as we discover things about the world and how it works that don't fit with the mythologies that existed before, there is strife. There is strife. So Einstein has always said, it's apples and oranges. You can't use science to prove religion. You can't prove religion, uh, use religion to prove science. But here is the fundamental difference between fundamentalist religion and you could call it spirituality, but you could also call it religion that is willing to incorporate modern knowledge, right? The fundamentalists say, no, the door is closed on that. There is no more to know. Everything that ever has needed to be known is already known. And then on the other side is, oh, we're learning stuff all the time. 
Do we have to throw away the baby just because we're throwing away the bathwater? No, maybe we can keep the baby and have a new way of thinking about the bathwater and a new way of thinking about the baby. So that's this, this reconciling modern knowledge with religion. This attempt to make a new map because we are in new territory rather than walking through the new territory staring at a 3,000 or 5,000 year old map and wondering why we're lost all the time. So I may or may not have mentioned to you at the beginning of this that I am not a scientist. <laughs> the sciences I took in, in, in school were all life sciences, as much as I could get away with, because I'm really interested in life sciences, and so, not so much physical and chemical sciences. I tried to stay away from those as much as possible. So here's what I know without being a scientist. The new stuff we know is mind-blowing. It's mind-blowing, and when our minds are blown, we either go, ah, and we open up, or we go, no, and we shut down. And so we see examples of that happening everywhere. But um, getting ready for that, I tell you, you know, I have these really good ideas. Oh, that would be a great sermon. And then I start working on it. It's like, oh, holy cow, what have I gotten myself into? So I read the Dalai Lama's book, The Universe in a Single Atom, and I read a bunch of Albert Einstein, and I read a bunch of just here and there, a bunch of different stuff. Um, a lot of Buddhist literature, because the Buddhists, not only, they have a cosmology of how the world began based not upon um, the fear and the moral impulses that we talked about before, but based upon sitting down and using your brain and thinking, now, does that make sense? Well, what about that? Well, if this is true, then this would have to be true. So do we experience this is true? Then maybe we can't call this true if we don't experience its consequences true. And that's been going on for millennia that they've been trying to sort of figure it out. But it's interesting that they've come up with a lot of the same things. So the new info is mind-blowing. And even the scientists themselves in the lab are empiricists. They are we're going to use this method, and this is how we're going to try to make things work. But outside of the lab, if you read anything that they write or listen in on their discussions, get an ear into one of their conferences, they're talking philosophy is really what they're talking. That's up my alley. I like that. So Einstein said, there's no space and time, but instead there is a time-space continuum. That blew our minds. What does that mean? And in physics, I'm not going to go into details here because I can't. But in physics, basically, we have two truths. And um, in, in Buddhism, we have three truths. I'm going to just contrast those for a minute. Two unreconciled truths. There is Kepler and Newton and the physical laws of the universe. This is gravity. You drop this, here's what happens. Our universe functions according to predictable laws. You can bet on it until you get down to the atomic level, at which level everything seems to be chaos or uncertainty or at best probability. And then when we try to test, is that really true? We find that just doing the test changes the outcome of the test or what kind of test we do, or who's doing the test, changes the outcome of the test. 
And so basically what quantum physics is, says, as I understand it, is that there is nothing that exists outside of the apparatus that defines it. So you can only observe something because there is an observer. And what the something is will change because of the observer. Nothing exists just totally in itself. We, I just love this. Basically, what I'm hearing in this, because I'm a minister, is we are all one. <laughs> Not one single jot of us or the universe exists without every single other atom. We are here as a collective. And to me, that's very, very exciting. I didn't need physics to tell me that, but it's cool that they're finding that out. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's funny because even as they're trying to, find, to, to prove that, they're still using the classical physics terms in order to try to define these new experiments in what they know classical physics doesn't work for. So that's the dilemma of quantum scientists today. That's where they are. So physics, in other words, things exist and act according to natural laws. Or there is no matter. There's only organized energy. And that is only provable when measured and every act of measuring changes the result. Yeah! <laughs> in Buddhism, in the Dhammapada, there are physics. I love this. The Buddha says that we do not have one continuous life. We have a series of moments. And our illusion tells us that it was all one. Um, it's often explained like a movie. If you actually look at the real, there's frame and frame and frame and frame and frame and frame. There is no continuous movie. It is our eyes that make the movie as the frame moves. This is basically the same thing. The Buddha says we think we have a life because those moments, we feel like they're strung together because they're happening quickly and we don't notice. He also believed though that he could take a space between those moments. And he called those moments dharmas, not dharma as in the way, but dharmas as in each little piece of life. I love that. Quanta. Each dharma is basically a quanta, an individual burst of energy, not continuous, but a succession of moments giving the illusion of time. And here are the things that the Buddhists say. All things come into being through interaction of causes and conditions. Nothing can happen from nothing. I think um, that was said quite beautifully by Rogers and Hammerstein. Nothing comes from nothing, nothing ever could. Mutual dependence between parts and whole is the second. That there is no existence of the whole with any part, if any part missing. And that is both in space and in time. There's no such thing as the existence of the whole with any part missing. Whew. And then three, a thing only exists within the context of everything related to it. No, there is no independent existence or identity. Does that, I know. I've been reading this stuff for weeks, getting ready for this. And, think, and then I had to go, how can I make this into one sermon? And my daughter said, it probably needs to be four or five. And I said, oh no, <laughs> I'm only doing this once. <laughs> so 
there is no privileged frame of reference. There is no one perspective where if you stand here, you get to see the whole truth. There are only as many truths as there are parts, as many truths as there are minds to interpret the truth. And there is no truth absent minds. When a tree falls in the forest and no one was there to hear, it didn't happen. (laughs) Yeah, there were squirrels there. It did happen. So, oh, say what? What does this all have to do with spirituality? What does it have to do with me? What does it have to do with you? Well, here are the exciting things that I think it has to do with me and you, which is something we've been talking about for the last several weeks in a row, is that the spiritual path is all about being able to hold paradox to seemingly disparate truths that yet are true at the same time. And to hold that paradox lightly because we were not meant with our human brains necessarily to reconcile them. And that's not what's important anyway. What's important is the message, I don't exist without you. I literally do not exist. There would be no Melinda Wood Allen if everyone else on this earth didn't exist in the way they are. We are completely interrelated and interdependent. Is that scary? It can be. But is it also really, really exciting? We talk about oneness. That's what oneness is. I don't exist without you. You don't exist without me. We are interrelated. We are interconnected. We are interdependent. And so here are some of the paradoxes that we get to hold on to and continue to allow new information into as we hold these paradoxes. One thing I want to say, it's probably not a head thing. It's going to need to be a heart thing, right? If you're going to understand it. Here's a paradox. Every single thing you or I do in our lifetimes matters. There's a consequence of everything we do. And we are such a blip (laughs) in the whole experience of all time and space that our individual human lives are quite insignificant. Both. Can you hold that both of those things might be true? To me, what that means is it matters to me what consequences I create in this life through my actions. And so that's what I focus my attention on. But I don't focus my attention on, oh my goodness, I'm going to make a wrong move and the whole world is going to be messed up. Another paradox we hold is that time is a construct. It's already been proven that if you, are, if you travel far out in space, time moves at a different rate than it does when you're here. Well, we already know that. Time moves at a different rate when, you're school, when your kids are um, out for summer <laughs> than it does when school starts again. The day suddenly gets much shorter when school starts again. It's relative. Time is a construct, and yet we live by deadlines. We live by deadlines. We have death. We have short lifetimes. Both of those are true. Consequences. There is a consequence for every action. And I would ask, where is the space in there for grace? That's something that I don't really know. I only know that I have felt grace in my life. 
Another, we are discrete human forms. We are, hello, here I am. Can't argue with that. But I exist only in moments. There's no real continuum of me. What does that mean? Here's the good news that it means. If you are only here in moments, then any given moment you can change the whole story. So there's karma. We're bound by everything we did. Well, but also there's a new moment every moment. We're bound by everything we did as long as we believe we're bound by everything we did. And when we break through to a different understanding or a different activity, then suddenly we can choose differently. We are disparate beings. Obviously, he's got a body, he's got a body, she's got a body, they got bodies, I got one. And yet we are one. That is the paradox that I try to hold the most closely to my heart. And when you sing a song that says parts of uh, Hitler and Genghis Khan and Jesus Christ are all in me, mm, mm, there's some words that we don't really like to use. But we will never know our oneness until we open to the fact that oneness means oneness. It doesn't mean oneness except for a few who really messed up. And this is something the Buddha said, no, there's no mind that thinks the thought. Since there's no continuum, there's no mind thinking a thought. There's simply a thought and 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 a thought. So the mind is just the thought. So if the thought changes, the mind changes. We know this in new thought, right? You change the thought, you change the mind. You change the mind, you change your experience of the world. So paradoxes that we can hold. And I would say, hold pretty lightly. Be ready for new information and don't try to figure it out with your head. Hold it in your heart. So is there an absolute reality according to these folks? My next question is, does it matter? Does it matter? Do I need to figure that out? No, I don't. Here's what I need to know. I have choice. I have a choice not to shut off my brain. I have a choice to decide how I want to live in this world, how I want to be love in this world, not just as a goal. I hope someday to be love in this world, but as a process because the process and the goal are one and the same. If you ever want to be love, all you have to do is love. And every moment that you're loving, you are love. That's all. There's no, I'm going to do this and this and someday I'll get there. Nope. You do it now, there's only this moment. And if you didn't do it in the last moment, yay, you get to change it in the next moment. Oneness is impossible for our human minds to grasp. And yet we all long to erase boundaries. We all want to belong, to connect, as Einstein said, to be, to understand ourselves as part of a significant whole, not just one tiny little short lifetime that blooms and then is gone the next day. So what I ask is, what have you seen as true in your life? Have you felt grace? Then by golly, call on grace. Have you experienced karmic consequences? If you want them different, make a different choice. If you think it's too late for you, hold this idea. No, it ain't. 
because the old you is already gone. It was only a bunch of moments and it doesn't even exist anymore. So you get to be new this day. You don't have to wait for Monday. You get to be new this day, this day. And so what do we choose to believe? What do we know is true in our hearts? What have we seen to be true as we observe our lives? And then how do we act from that place? If I believe that we are one, how do I act from that place? One of the things I do is that I don't push you out of my heart. And so I would ask today, who have you pushed out of your heart? Is it possible that in this next moment, you could let them back in? Doesn't mean you approve of their behavior, but not approving of behavior is not the same as pushing someone out of the circle of your love. And we get that choice in every moment. So the idea presented here, both by the Buddhist and by the physics, is that um, we have this physical world and we have to, you know, basically don't say, well, gravity kind of doesn't exist at the atomic level, so I can go throw watermelons at people. <laughs> right? We live in this world which is somewhat of an illusion. And yet it's the world we're living in, in human form, our bodies seem to be following those principles. And so we act from that place and we find what works and we practice that and we get better at it. If you want love, be love. If you want love, love. If you want a loving world, include everyone in your heart. Thank you. <clears throat> So we're going to take that into uh, a meditation. All this month, um, I have asked people to be praying this meta prayer. How many of you have been doing that pretty faithfully every day? Awesome. It's life-changing. Have you felt a difference? We're going to talk about that next week. So let's just go into that prayer because it is about what we've just discussed here. So take a deep breath. And feel the gravity of where you're sitting. Pretty much guarantee you're not going to float off into space. And yet, your mind and heart can open and everything can change. And so we simply breathe into that, into that knowing that there is something greater, something larger something significant, something completely whole. And it is not separate from you or me. We are that. We are in that. We live in that. We affect that. And in ourselves, we are whole. So every act of love, every prayer of love for ourselves is a prayer of love for that whole, that interrelated whole in which we all belong. W-H-O-L-E, that, that interrelated whole. And so we pray this prayer. 
may I have happiness and the causes of happiness. Breathe into that. May I be free from suffering and the causes of suffering. Just as Einstein said, what we do comes out of our longing to not suffer, to be free. May I never be parted from freedom's true joy. Because when I am free, joy is the result. May I rest in equanimity, free from attachment and aversion. you to hold someone in your mind that you would like to pray this prayer for. Maybe somebody that you've been kind of edging out of your heart or at least pushed over into the corners that you'd like to welcome back in. Hold that person in your mind, in your mind's eye, and silently say with me or after me, may you have happiness and the causes of happiness. May you be free from suffering and the causes of suffering. Free from that fear. Free from that terror that keeps you bound. May you never be parted then from that freedom's true joy. And may you rest in equanimity, free from attachment and aversion, meeting life as it comes. good to open our hearts in that way and so now we are going to include all of us all of us here in this room all of us here on this earth all of us everywhere of whatever political party whatever religion whatever behavior pray this prayer sincerely with our hearts. May all beings everywhere have happiness and the causes of happiness. May all beings everywhere be free from suffering and the causes of suffering. May all beings everywhere never be parted from freedom's true joy. May all
all beings everywhere rest in equanimity, free from attachment and aversion. Rest in equanimity. Rest free from attachment and aversion. Another way of saying that is lay the burdens down. They're not yours to carry. And when we lay the burdens down and allow our hearts to open enough to want others to be able to lay their burdens down, then we are free. And that freedom brings us joy. We claim that joy and we rest in it and we give thanks for it. We are grateful. And so it is. Amen.